Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Greetings, scholar warriors and fellow travelers. Welcome to another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. Recently, I spoke to good friend Brett Vinat of School Sucks, and we had a long conversation that kind of went through three topics. We spoke for a little while about our experiences in recent months with figuring out how to do serious fitness training from home since the gyms were shut down either for months or in some places might still be shut down, at least as far as legal gyms go. You can probably find a gym speakeasy if you really want to. But both of us have been kind of building home gyms and we're both into fitness, so we spoke about that for a little while. Then we spoke for a bit longer about my experiences so far this semester with teaching all online, which it's been very tedious, time-consuming, stressful, etc., etc., etc. So we talk about that and the issues with that, and we talk a bit about my thoughts overall on kind of where higher education seems to be going and what changes might or might not be on the horizon. And then we spoke. Lastly, for quite a while, about my DHP episode from several months back, Divide and Conquer, Divide and Rule. So because we spoke for well over two hours, Brett decided to break it into two episodes, and on my crossover version of the same conversation, I decided to do that as well. I think it makes sense in this case, not only because the conversation was pretty long, but also because it's sort of broken into discrete topics. So this first episode is going to start with talking about my experiences teaching all online this semester and my thoughts on where higher education may be going. And then at the end, we talk about home fitness, which in the actual conversation, we spoke about that first. Brett decided to put it at the end of his episode with the first part of our conversation so that if someone listening isn't at all interested in home fitness and that kind of stuff, they, you know, wouldn't necessarily have to fast forward through it at the very beginning of our conversation. And I thought that made sense. So I decided in my rebroadcast or my crossover version to leave it like that as well. So we'll start off in what was technically already, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes into our conversation, speaking about my experience teaching the semester and all that. And then at the end, we cut to talking a bit about home fitness and putting together home gyms and our experiences of what it's been like to try and maintain a high level of physical fitness in all the lockdowns and whatnot. So this conversation is going to be what was already published a few days ago by Brett as School Sucks Podcast Episode 677, I believe. So if you've already listened to it on that feed, there's no real reason for you to listen to it here unless you really just want to relive the experience, which I don't blame you. It was a cool conversation. And the next part, which I'm going to be releasing 
within a day or two of releasing this one, is going to be featuring the same segment of the conversation as was in School Sucks episode 678, where we really talk a lot about what's going on in terms of divide and conquer and divide and rule. And I just want to urge you, if you're not already, to go check out schoolsucksproject.com and listen to and subscribe to Brett's podcast. He's been doing it for over a decade at this point, and he was one of the maybe three or four podcasters that I was listening to in the years right before I started this podcast that really kind of inspired me to start my own show. So it's always really cool to talk to him because he was on my short list of podcasters who inspired me to do one of my own. Also, particularly before you listen to the next episode, the next part of our conversation where we talk about divide and conquer, divide and rule, I would highly recommend that before you listen to that one, if you've not already listened to that DHP episode, that you go check it out. It was episode 205 of the Dangerous History Podcast. Also, just letting you all know in general that because of the extreme time-consuming nature and all that of me having to teach classes all online this semester, it has slowed down my DHP productions somewhat, but don't worry, I'm still working as hard as I can in every spare minute that I can find in true Guerrilla Scholar Warrior fashion. Behind the scenes... I'm currently working on the next Woodrow Wilson episode, which is going to deal with his entry into politics, his campaign for governor of New Jersey, his time as governor of New Jersey, and end, still not 100% sure yet, either as he gets the nomination for the Democratic Party presidential ticket in 1912, or maybe stop just before that. I'm still not exactly sure quite where I'll cut off the story. But anyway, the episode will be essentially focused on Wilson running for and being governor of New Jersey. And I've already got the first hour or so of that recorded, and then I'm just working on putting together my notes for the remaining segments. And then, of course, I'll record that. And I'm also working behind the scenes on some other episodes and things coming up, including some bonus content for supporters of the show. So stay tuned. And now I present the first part of my recent conversation with Brett Vinat of School Sucks. Welcome back to the show. Brett, it is always a treat to talk with you. Likewise. So this is kind of how I, I have things planned out today. I want to start with some small talk, move on to some medium talk, and we'll finish with some large talk, some big topics that I'm really interested in getting your take on. But first of all, we haven't talked in a while, and I think the last time you were on the show was we were doing a series on self-discipline, and we talked a lot about your health and fitness journey. And uh, I'm looking at you across the Zoom right now. You still look pretty great. You look like you're uh, continuing to make progress from what I've seen on Facebook. I've actually put on weight, but yeah. I know that it's mostly muscle. So right. I'm okay with that. So I wanted to hear a little bit about, since I haven't had... No, we talked, I guess, right at the beginning of this whole thing, you were on the show. That was the last time you were on the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Hi, How Are You series. The Hi, How Are You series. Because I, I see you posting, you know, the fitness updates. So how have you modified your routine with everything that's been going on over the last, I guess, now six months now? So I know not everybody loves 
fitness talk, weightlifting talk. So I clipped this part out and I just stuck it at the end of the show. That way you can have the option. And now we're just going to skip ahead about 10 minutes to the part where we're talking about what it's like to live in Florida. Man, everything there is just uh, trying to kill you, huh? Pretty much. Yeah, okay. Pretty much. I, I mean, it's like the outback. Yeah, I've heard people say, you know, that that Florida is kind of like the Australia of America in the yes. sense of like in the water, on the land, in the air, you know, there's there's reptiles, there's you know, sharks, there's just all kinds of stuff. Pygmy yeah. rattlesnakes, and, rattlesnakes oh. that are more venomous than regular rattlesnakes but too small to see. Yeah, 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 they actually they bite more people than anything um because they're so small. And then we have the largest rattlesnakes um in America and I guess the world too. Last time I checked the world record Eastern diamondback rattlesnake um, came from up the road from me where I used to live in St. Augustine. Uh, something absurd, like eight feet, eight yeah. foot rattlesnake. And like, it's, you know, it's bigger around it, it than my forearm at its, yeah. at its fattest. I, I, I saw a picture of it when they, they got it like 10, 20 years ago. I was just like, that, that doesn't look real. No. Well, Continued good luck down there with all that, plus the heat. Yeah, and, and hurricane season ain't over, uh, knock on wood. No, oh, that's so, right. The big one mostly missed you, right? Yeah, that last one, we, we just got a little bit of you know rain on the edges, but um, they do come in, in throughout September, and uh, they can come into October. So yeah. fingers crossed, knock on wood, maybe it'll be the one thing about 2020 that's not a complete uh, clusterfuck or whatever. Um, right. Yeah, we'll see. Florida living. Uh, I guess it beats the West Coast right now, too, for for various reasons. But um, yeah, well, I, I got to say in the yeah. in the medium term, my wife and I are looking hard at New Hampshire potentially as a as a relocation spot. Excellent. So, That's where I am. You know, I'm in the town. I live in the town that I lived in when I actually started the podcast. And back then I didn't really like this place. It was kind of like a temporary stop that I wound up in for a little too long. It A lot has changed here in the past decade, and it's a really cool place to live. And I'm just rediscovering like how much nature there is here and, um, you know, trying to uh, appreciate it and utilize it as much as possible. But uh, also, thanks for rapping about fitness with me. I don't get to do that enough. And um, like I said, I have a very high level of enthusiasm about this. If the whole COVID thing uh, somehow creates the pressure to fix the school system and it doesn't suck anymore, I'm going to move on to doing a YouTube channel about these resistance bands workouts. I'm calling it Brother of Bands. Nice. I thought you'd like that as a history guy. Um, so that might be what's next for me, but, uh, that's, um, that's most of our small talk. I wanted to move into the, to the medium talk. First of all, it's very cool that you're thinking about coming up to New Hampshire. Um, I know you've been here, right? Yeah. Yeah. Several times. Um, once a long, long time ago, um, I guess when I was maybe still in college, uh, just sort of drove through it on my way to visit some people up in Maine. Two times, like since I've started the podcast and been kind of a part of the, the worldwide freedom-ish uh, thing, such as it is. Um, yeah, I've been up to Porkfest once and then to uh, the Free Coast Fest in Portsmouth once. So never been to, Ma- to Manchester or any of the stuff in between Lancaster and Portsmouth. But Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, because I've only ever run into you in Michigan. Right? Yeah. I think. I feel weird that we didn't bump into each other in Michigan a couple months ago, that it's sort of become a thing. 
that's when the the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest would have been, right? Yes. Like in 20, 2018, 2019, right? It was like, what, middle of June, something like that? Yeah, they did do it. They did it just like a couple of weeks ago, I think. Yeah, they did it. They did it much later and it was at a different location, uh, like on a, a you know private property sort of a thing. So it was kind of a different kind of mm-hmm. a different deal in some ways. But yeah, and it was at a time where, you know, there was no, there was no way I could have gone in, in yeah, August. So. I'm not crazy about getting on a plane and it was like a 16 hour drive. So yeah. 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 I missed it though, because, you know, went the last uh, two years in a row. Right. And we had those, those little chicky hut, chicken coop cabin <laughs> thing of jigs or whatever they are. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, this year I know it coincided with the whole uh, back to school thing for you, and that moves us on to the medium talk of um, how is college this year? I'm not a fan. Yeah. I'm not a fan. That's that's the kind of short version. Um, the way it played out, and it's, it's different in in different states, and even different individual colleges um, have made different decisions. You know, I know some states there's just like an order from the state about what to do with COVID um, other states like Florida, it's sort of left up to the individual colleges to, to make their own decision. Um, and I know that some of the community college type colleges that are similar to the one that I work at have opened up in some way, you know, and, and do have at least some amount of on-campus live classes and students coming in and, you know, they're giving students and faculty, I think some options, and some people are choosing to do all or mostly online and some people aren't. But um, where I work, what happened was they kind of over the summer kept changing what the plan was. And it was one of those things where it was all really kind of up in the air until just a few weeks before the semester was going to start. And so originally it was just sort of up to, up to faculty how much they did or did, didn't want to have um, online classes. And so um, originally I was, they, they kind of were saying, we're encouraging you to do maybe a little bit more of your classes online than you normally would. Um, at, at one point early in the summer, they kind of said, we want everyone to try to do at least one of their classes more online than, than you normally would have. And they kind of asked us like, all right, of the classes you're scheduled to be teaching in the fall which one or two would you prefer to be transformed into online? And then partway a little, little later in the summer, then they kind of said, um, we're opening it up again. If you want to put any more of your classes online than you already have, you can do so. Let us know and we'll make the changes. And at that point, they also said um, that you could choose to do some or all of your office hours virtually over Zoom and that usually the college has a, a requirement that if you're a full-time faculty member, you have to be physically on one of the three campuses at least a little bit every single weekday. So, you know, I usually have like on Friday, I'm not on campus, but a few hours, but then I'm on longer the other days of the week. But I have to, I have to show up at least part of the day. Um, on campus Monday through Friday. And they kind of said that because of COVID and and giving people options to maybe do more of their stuff online, they're no longer going to require that you have to be in physically on campus a certain amount of time, whatever. And I was like, all right. And I started uh, thinking about, you know, what I was going to do and, um, you know, looking at kind of my my family requirements and all that. And I, and I basically said, all right, I'm going to move 
you know, maybe one or two more classes online and do it in a way so that I don't have to commute into campus. Cause I have a long commute. My commute's 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, so that I maybe only have to commute to campus and be there two or three days a week. I forget exactly how I had set it up at the time. So, so I was like, Oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, I can, I can only, I can, I can work from home a couple of days a week or whatever. And that'll be kind of neat. It'll be a pain doing a few more classes online, but the flip side is, um, you know, I'll, I'll not have to commute in every day and that'll be all right. But I still was signed up to teach like a couple classes in person. I was still, you know, not all online. Right. And then you get to just a, a few weeks before the start of the semester and they, they blasted an email out saying it's all online. Like just no every, yeah. Yeah. That, that you, you can come into work, but you're going to be teaching online from your office at work if that's what you do. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's a handful of exemptions for some of the more kind of like um, job training type classes that we have that you can't really do, over, you know, certain, like it, if you're training to be an EMT or something like this, you, you know, equipment, right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. But other than those specific exemptions, everything's online and, and that was kind of it. And, and so, um, you know, I, I understand, like, I, I have a little bit of sympathy for what, what the college administration was dealing with in terms of all the uncertainty and all the different, you know, pressures coming from different angles. And of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand like they were concerned that if they did reopen with a good chunk of classes still live and in person, what happens if for whatever reason, there's another just order from the state as happened last spring saying halfway through the semester, boom, you're all going home and have to finish online. That's obviously way more disruptive to have to transform to online halfway through the semester than if you just do it all from the beginning that way. So, you know, I'm not unsympathetic to to what they were dealing with from their perspective, but, you know, obviously from my perspective as someone who's generally not a fan of online teaching, if it's in a typical institutional graded type of a, of a thing, I wasn't a fan of this at all, especially since most of the classes that I'm teaching are not ones that I typically do online. Right. And so that, that means I have a ton of busy work all the time, just little mundane things that you don't think about if you've never um, taught an online class of like uploading all of the, the documents that I give to students to read, you know, historical documents and whatever, uploading all of my visual aids, putting all of my, my, my tests and quiz questions and all that sort of thing into Canvas. I mean, these, these are all extremely time-consuming, nitty-gritty, annoying things that, that take forever. And these are all things that in terms of teaching classes in person and, you know, having like paper tests and whatever like that, these are all things I had down, you know, that I just run off some more copies of the quiz or whatever it is I needed to do. And it was no big deal. And I already was just used to, and, and so many little things too, that, that you don't think about until it happens where like, you know, if a student has an issue or a question in an in-person class that can be handled by a 20 second conversation at the end of class or before class or something like that. Mm-hmm. And now it turns into a big back and forth, you know, over email and messaging and whatever. And of course, then you run into all the difficulties of electronic communication as far as, you know, people not getting what you're saying or misinterpreting things or, you know, just on and on and on. Oh, and that waiting on somebody else, you know, like that folder of like waiting on somebody else for this or that is, uh, that can be a frustrating thing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've, I don't know if I've ever met a college, you know, instructor, a professor who has said that they like teaching online 
more than teaching in person face to face. I've never heard anyone say that. In fact, I've almost exclusively I've heard the opposite extremely, right? Of yeah, like, yeah. oh, I can't stand online. I, I wish I, I couldn't do it. And there's people who will say like, oh, I like that it gives me a little more flexibility in my schedule or whatever like that. But but even they will say, but it's not fun. It's not fulfilling. I don't enjoy it. And the students typically do worse, yeah. you know? So, and and then thinking about it from the student's perspective, of course, we would have to guess that some significant percentage of students would like the option to do some of their classes in a regular face-to-face setting. Um, And and they just don't have the option. And so, you know, normally when there's a good variety of online and in-person classes, you would guess that at least most of the students that are choosing to do online classes, they have at least some like savvy and, and capabilities with the sort of technology and how to do it. But now if it's everybody, that means even a person who's never done an online class has very little tech savvy, doesn't hardly know anything about, you know, canvas and zoom and how to use a computer properly for these things and whatever. Now, suddenly here we go. They're all told like, this is all there is. Um, And so, you know, I I know that we kind of experienced this somewhat for the second half of of last spring semester, but um, you know, just having everything that way, it's been exhausting me and stressing me out and just not, not great. Not great. Yeah, I want to I want to talk a little bit more about the adapting to that for both somebody in your position and um you know for for the students or what your advice would be for students in that situation and I would just say that yeah, I was curious how you were how you were dealing with this because I saw a couple of your posts on Facebook about it and when my teaching career ended the whole like online tutoring thing was just starting to boom this was like 6 years ago and I was trying to transition. We had some, the, the company that, um, I, I worked for and I still did actually like a lot of the, the face to face SAT tutoring for. We had this area like west of Manchester between Manchester and Keene, New Hampshire, just on lock, like where everybody from this one high school was calling us just through word of mouth, which was great. But, um, we had a small staff. Um, I obviously it was my job, so I wanted to take as many people as I can. And I tried to trans- transition some of them to online. And I remember back then I started thinking like, yeah, this is great because now I think at the time I was living in Keene and I was, yeah, I was saving an hour and a half a day, sometimes commuting hellos and goodbyes, talking to parents. It seemed like it was more efficient, but I remember thinking like in a one-on-one kind of way, how scalable is this? Right. So now you're talking about having to do this with every student that you have in these poor public school teachers who, you know, might have, I don't know, what 80 to 100 students, maybe more in some cases uh, that they have to manage this for all at once. So, um, yeah, I absolutely get the frustration where I was thinking, like, maybe maybe this could work with the same amount of like uh clients that I had for in-person at the height, which might have been like between 15 and 20 people at a time, right? Like maybe I could have managed it. And that would have been better because it meant less commuting, right? I wasn't going to one place. I was going from house to house to house to house, uh, except for, you know, the the rare convenient occasions where we could set up at a high school or something. So um, yeah, I mean, that I had lots of questions about the scalability of that. I guess maybe some of those questions are starting to be answered, but is there i know we're we're still kind of early on here this has only been like 3 weeks but have you been able to find some kind of balance or adaptation to this and the the following question would be like what are you suggesting that students do in this situation hmm. yeah well um 
the majority of my classes, what the college did was when they just, you know, decided to make everything online and that's it. They made all of the classes that were still at that time scheduled to be in person. They -hmm. turned them into what they call live online classes, which is where you do have scheduled class meeting times over Zoom. So like if I had a class that was originally going to be in person Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 10 to 1050, it's still Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 10 to 1050, only I'm talking to them over Zoom. And then obviously because of that, then, you know, everything has to be done either through, you know, Zoom in terms of talking to them and whatever. And then uh, Canvas is is the online platform that we use, you know, for like assignments and posting uh, supplemental materials and things like that for them to do out of class. Right. And so, you know, as someone who has used Canvas for a long time, I'm, I know how to do everything I need to do with it. It's not that I don't know how to do anything, do the things I need to do with it. Um, it's that a lot of it is often extremely tedious and time consuming, it's, especially when you're starting from scratch and like building things and setting them up. So there's just kind of no way, no way around that. And then as far as, you know, talking to people over Zoom, it's fine in terms of like what we're doing right now over Zoom, you know, to, to just talk to one or a couple of people, have a conversation, do a podcast or whatever, it's fine. But it's really weird when you're talking to 20 people and, you know, they're all 17, 18, 19 year olds who, who knows how much of them being there is voluntary at all. Yeah. And, and there's, there's always something lost in translation. I mean, you know, even in a conversation like ours, it would be different if we were sitting across that picnic table in Michigan again or whatever, right? There Mm -hmm. would, there would be just, you know, but you can imagine how much even more when you're talking to, to 20 people at once and, you know, it's, it's really awkward. Like I, I use that zoom has a whiteboard. I don't know if you've ever, ever messed, messed with that. Um, and you know, I use, I use the zoom whiteboard to like put up little terms and names and whatever, but it's like awkward and clunky and it takes a bunch of clicks to bring it up and then pull it back down. And, um, you know, I use screen share on zoom to put up a visual aid, something that if I was in the classroom, I would just, uh, project it up on a, on, on the screen at the front of class and it'd be super easy, barely an inconvenience. Well, with Zoom, it's, you know, it's a little clunky and whatever. And I don't know, it, it's just, everything's just very kind of awkward and weird. And, you know, I, I try to make the best of it. I try to kind of joke about it when something isn't working or when I'm, you know, something's taking me a minute to set up or whatever like that. And, you know, I, I, I'm trying to, to adapt the, you know, all the little things that the, the jokes and whatever that I normally would, would insert in my classes. And, but it's, you know, you, you may have heard, I definitely have, uh, I listen to a few different comedy podcasts and stuff and, um, you know, comedians, and they've all said that like this idea that you can do stand-up comedy over Zoom or whatever is just, it's absurd, you know, that, that there's there's something lost there that even even if you've got really great jokes and material, it might just completely fail to land over Zoom. And I, I think it's true maybe to a lesser extent though for, for someone like me who I'm used to teaching history in person and I'm used to being able to, to connect 
with students in in that intangible way. Having a feedback It's hard to replicate. Yeah. That would be so important to a comedian. And if you think about it, uh, a lot of, you know, I taught history too. And the same kind of like I'm in front of people and they're looking at me and I'm kind of reading that. Like it's a lot of it is storytelling. You're kind of reading your audience like a, like a comedian or a slam, slam, whoever, right? Yeah. Some, an orator, any kind of, uh, public speaker is reading their audience to kind of cue what they should do next. And yeah. I, so um, in these Zoom meetings, are the kids, because uh, it would be helpful, but I don't like things to be required, but are they required to like be on video? Yes. And, um, at least, you know, they, we're allowed to to have that be policy and i made it i made it policy for my classes mm-hmm. and um you know i've had students who who for like one class won't have their webcam on but will have like emailed me and said hey my webcam isn't working or you know something like that and i'm just like all right but you know get get it back on for next time or whatever did you hear the story about the the SWAT team sent to a kid's house no uh, a public school SWAT team sent to a kid's house, or at least the police. I don't want to be uh, exaggerating here. I think it. Let's just say the police were sent. The, to the these house. days, the police are almost all SWAT operators half the time. Anyway, <laughs> that's you know? yeah, that's a good point because a kid had a, like a toy gun in the background, and I'm thinking in Florida, this is tremendously inefficient because everybody probably has a gun in their background, you know, on these Zoom calls. I mean, I may or may not have multiple ones just out of the camera right now. You know, I'm not saying I do, but I'm not saying I don't. Right, right. So I would be terribly inefficient if you were a uh, hysterical public school teacher in Florida where it's just like, uh, you know, the Zoom class comes up and you're looking at like 20 guns. Yeah. And it's it's also kind of weird, too, because. Um, at least some of the area that my college serves is is a fairly high poverty area. Yeah. And so I, I get it that some of these students may be living in like like housing projects or trailers or who knows what and 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 who knows what's going on, you know, around them. And some of them are are dual enrollment students, so they're still high school uh students getting college mm-hmm. credit. And so like on the one hand, like I, I, I wanna have some sympathy for like if you're if you're living in a complete tenement dump sort of a place and you might be embarrassed about that or whatever, but you know, at the same time, I can't just have a whole bunch of black boxes with names that I'm talking to. First off, that's gonna make everything even more awkward. Cause at least with Zoom, I can at least see if like some of the students seem to be laughing or nodding or you know, at least getting something of what I'm saying. Yeah. Um I at least get a little bit of feedback if I can see their faces. But um you know, the other thing is there's the possibility I, – I am still taking attendance and everything like this, and there is the possibility that someone could just log into the Zoom meeting and um, not even be there. You know, just like log their, their device in and go walk away and do something else or, you know, have, have their computer or device logged into the Zoom meeting while they're just watching TV, really, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't want to count that as having attended, right? So um, that's the other reason for it. And then there's all the, the tricky stuff like – um. I made it like a, a rule in my syllabus for these live online classes that during class time, they have to have their webcam on, but they have to have their microphone off unless they use, there's the little hand raise, ask a question sort of uh, emoji looking thing in Zoom, little little tool to do that. And, you know, I'm not looking to be an annoying jerk or whatever, but if I've got 20 or 25 students, as I do in some of my classes, if they've all got their mics on, we're all getting crazy background noise. 
um, from everybody's home. And then, and then also if everyone's just, you know, asking a question whenever it occurs to them or making a comment whenever it occurs to them, I mean, I'm sure we've all been on Zoom calls for work or family reasons where it's a whole bunch of people and there's not great microphone discipline and everyone is talking over each other all the time. So if I've got 20 students all asking questions whenever they feel like it, it, it turns into a chaotic mess. So I've had to be kind of a, kind of a Prussian, um, kind of a <laughs> yeah. Prussian organizer here. Yeah. Have some discipline as far as your mic is off, unless you do the little hand raise thingy um, in zoom. And I say, yes, so-and-so, what is it? So again, in, in, in class, I'm a little bit more laid back on that. If it's a big class full of students, a, a live class, I will kind of say like, Hey, you know, kind of do the hand raise thing. Not because I'm trying to infantilize you, but because we can't have 30 people all, you know, jabbering over each other simultaneously. Um, but I've had to be a little bit more, a little bit more Prussian in the Zoom thing just because of that. And again, you know, I don't see any way around that in the situation. It, it adds to the weird awkwardness and artificiality feeling, I think. Telescreen. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I don't see any, any alternative if you're going to prevent it from just being a chaotic mess of background noise and all kinds of people randomly piping in. And mm-hmm. yeah. So that's, that's another aspect of it. Um, as far as the, the student side of things, I mean, one thing I would say is, and this would go for online classes across the board, including the asynchronous ones where you don't have live uh, meetings or whatever like that, right. that you really need to understand that online, whether it's synchronous or asynchronous, it, it requires more in the, in the way of initiative and self-discipline on your part that it's even if I'm having zoom meetings with you and I'm reminding you through canvas and, and at the zoom meetings, like, Hey, remember this quiz over here is due next Friday or whatever. It still doesn't seem to be the same for students as far as like how well they, you know, keep, keep on the trolley with whatever it is they're supposed to be doing versus actually having to show up in person and look you in the eye face to face and have you say, Hey, remember that things do next week. And then they go, Oh yeah, yeah. And they do it. And, um, and another thing, and I had already experienced this in, in regular online classes for years This is part of why I don't like teaching online is that it, it seems like not only do students tend to do worse, they perform worse in online classes uh, across the board, their character is, um, harmed by their personal character is degraded by the online environment um, very often uh, in the same way that, you know, it happens in, in, in social media and elsewhere, even with people who are not anonymous, they, they turn into more of jerks than mm-hmm. they normally would be. And so in the online class situation that in my experience manifests itself as things like students being more likely to try to lie um, yeah. about, you know, not, doing an assignment on time or whatever like that and just trying to feed you a load of BS and get excuse and use excuses to try and get special treatment and exceptions and all these sorts of things. Um, they'll do it. If you bust them for plagiarism or cheating or something like this in a face-to-face setting, they're more likely to kind of accept it, to kind of like shake their head and say, man, I did it. You got me. Um, or at least be quiet. Right. Whereas you bust them for obvious clear cheating or plagiarism in online, they're more likely to keep sending you emails being like, oh, but I didn't, and like trying to give you a line of BS that they didn't cheat or plagiarize even when you have overwhelming uh, proof to that fact. And so they just, they give you a lot more crap that they they wouldn't give to you if they've got to look you in the face. This is one of the concerns that I had about this, because obviously in our schooling, we don't get a lot of education on the value of things like full engagement and accountability. 
and the face-to-face interactions that we have as teachers with students kind of, I hate to say forces that, right? But it kind of makes it so there's no way around it, right? When, when you're in that situation. So now they've been absolved of that responsibility of having yeah. to develop the skill of attention and perseverance because like, I mean, I've got a, a widescreen monitor in front of me. I could have like three or four things going on here that you don't know about, yep. you know? Yeah. The accountability piece is huge too, where it is very easy. Like you're saying with social media to not have, I mean, you can be a different kind of person when, you know, the world wide web is between you and the person that you're interacting with. So yeah, yeah. That distance and, and they don't have anonymity. Like I know who they are. I can see right. them. I, I know you know, I can I can call their home phone if I needed to or something like this. Um, they still, though, there's just something for humans where that distance, that that physical distance, it's, I think it's the same psychological thing that happens when people are driving in cars where suddenly they become just complete assholes to each other in a way that if they were walking around, they never would. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, like, like you've never had somebody uh, in the grocery store like accidentally – maybe almost bump into you and you're like, Oh, you son of a bitch. And you're, you're like, you know, having fantasies about murdering them or, or whatever like that. Or maybe I'm the only person that does that driving, but um, I'm sure I'm not. But uh, you know, when you're in the car, everyone turns into like way more of an asshole. Um, there, there's this dehumanization that happens. And, and, and in my experience, at least it seems like somewhat of that sort of thing is going on from the student's perspective. Cause I just look at like, you know, out of out of the students I have, what percentage of the ones that are giving me a lot of trouble and a lot of hassles and all this sort of thing, what percentage of them are are online versus in person? It's over like disproportionately, very overwhelmingly, the online students are more likely to really be a complete uh, pain in the ass in that way. Do you think if things got bad enough, you'd say like, hey, let's jump on a Zoom call face to face and let's talk about this for 15 or 20 minutes? Oh, yeah, I might. You know, I, I do have Zoom office hours where I've got a Zoom meeting that the students have have a link to. Um, and so, you know, they can they can pop in to talk to me about something. And, yeah, if something, you know, was a big enough problem and for some reason I felt like it wasn't being uh, handled through, um, you know, email and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I might say, look, these are my office hours. You you tell me when uh, when you can talk to me during one of those times, but you know, I, we need to talk about whatever. Um, you know, I, I haven't this early in the semester. I haven't had any like really significant problems mm-hmm. of that sort. You know, it's it's too early for for there to have been like any issues with cheating or plagiarism. Um, the graded work they've done so far has only been you know small stuff. Honestly, the the first few things are pretty easy anyway. So you know, it hasn't gotten to the point yet this semester where I'm dealing with a lot of crap. Um, although I am dealing already with like just little hassles of like people not understanding how to how to log into Canvas or whatever, um, I, I just got a message from a student, a, a DM through Canvas, um, not long ago. I am not sure if this student can actually really read. Yeah, like, like no joke. We're three weeks into the semester. Um, he just took his first, you know, real like content type quiz. And he sends me a message, which first off is hard to even read or make sense of because it's just completely garbled. There's like no sense sentences. It's just, I don't even know how to describe it. And, right. and, but from what I could glean of what he wrote, he's not even aware that there's a textbook for the right. class. And he yeah. was like surprised, like, I didn't know what the quiz was on. 
there's a textbook for this class? Is this a class that has like no lecture? This is my asynchronous one. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, there's like recorded audio lectures from me. And, and then there's also, you know, uh, textbook readings. This is Florida history. So it's actually, the textbook is actually a pretty good book, not a, not a usual kind of textbook textbook. And is it like um, a poor curriculum class for? Uh, it is one that'll check off a, a gen ed Okay, social science yeah. credit if they that's take it. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. probably a really frustrating class to have to teach if people are just trying to check that off. Yeah. I mean, technically all my classes are that. Um, so yeah, I know. would see Florida history being like more attractive for that for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, people who, who have lived in Florida, it's, it's the same thing when like a, a woman thinks she'll take a woman's studies class and like just get an A for showing up or something like this, I guess yeah, that sure. sort of phenomenon, you know, oh, I've lived in Florida my whole life. I've, you know, been to some historical places or whatever. I'll just show up and get an A in Florida history. But um, I got the impression from an earlier message from the same student that, that uh, he, he may not have actually even quite fully understood what an online class was. Whatever is the cause, and I have no idea because I don't. I've never met this person and, and don't know him. Uh, but th- that whatever your issues are are severe enough that three weeks into a course, you you don't even know that there's a textbook you're supposed to have been looking at, even though it's like mentioned countless times throughout all the Canvas stuff and the syllabus and in 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 the weekly like you know, what you're supposed to be doing that week. It's always like, read chapter three of this book. And, you know, what what do I even do with that? Are people coming to you with other types of problems, I guess I would ask, that you, you feel like you have been able to address and solve just with the, with the adjustment? Because I'm sure there's a lot of students who have never really been in this situation either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been just basic, simple nuts and bolts stuff where someone's like, oh, hey, where where is... Uh, where's the link to, to get to the zoom classes? And I just say, Oh, it's over here in canvas. And like, okay, problem solved. Like there's, you know, and that stuff at the very beginning of the semester, there was a lot of that stuff. And so it got kind of annoying, you know, dealing with it because my inbox would just be blasted, but it's not like it was, you know, really each individual one wasn't a giant hassle or pain in the ass. It was just the, the accumulation of a whole ton of them that first week. But, um, you know, things like that, not a big deal, but, you know, when it's one of these severe ones, it's one thing if you're kind of unsure where something is located, where something is found. But if like you don't even have like the big picture idea of what this thing even is or what you're supposed to be doing, like in the broad sense, somebody who seems that lacking in like the basic, basic foundational skills, how on earth are they supposed to like read chapters yeah. of a of a serious history book? And then, like, you know, answer some questions or write some stuff about it. Like, I, I don't see how that works. It's a kind of person that shouldn't be forgotten where whether we're even talking about the higher levels of K through 12 or community college or, or undergrad, there's probably lots of people in situations where they just haven't been prepared for the kind of independence that this thing is going to require. You know, so that that's that's a whole separate, but I think probably a significant group of people that are really going to struggle with this. And, you know, so I, I think we, we talked about some of the problems to be aware of, like the, the lack of accountability, the loss of the feedback loop for students and teachers. And a friend of mine, uh, we were, we were talking in a, in a group of people this morning. He's a, he's a public school teacher and he actually, he put together a kind of like, um, operator's manual for the human brain and said to the students, like, you should have this for your own brain because other people have these for your brain. 
and they're going to use it against you. So we're talking about this and, you know, he's obviously like in new territory. This is not something that you go over uh, in a public school class with public school students. And I think he was feeling in need of feedback, considering this was something that was, you know, possibly even controversial and might make kids uncomfortable. And he wound up just saying not and not getting it from the students in a Zoom meeting said, how about you just uh, unmute and mute if you're uh, if you're feeling what I'm saying right now. And mm-hmm. then a bunch of people were were comfortable doing that. So, yeah, I mean, there's going to be like a learning of a new language here, but it's also going to be a degradation of language, I think, in many ways, and, and degradation of experience beyond, if we're talking about K through 12, uh, what it already is. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to somebody like you who's doing this is it also seems like there's, there's a tremendous opportunity here. Uh, you know, like um, the people in my family um, are saving tons of time each day you know, doing their doing their work online. And some of it might be asynchronous and some of it might require, um, you know, time in front of the virtual classroom. But I think kids uh, or even, you know, young adults like college people um, being offered potentially a more efficient way to do things to uh, have more of their time freedom relinqu- uh, reclaimed is a good thing, potentially. And I don't know if you're you're not feeling that way yet. No, I'm not. And the the main reason is simply because the amount of time that I have to spend um, building the courses, basically, as we go, because of the relatively short notice that everything was going to be online. And the fact that I most of the classes I'm teaching, I've not taught fully online before um, that I have so much uh, busy work in terms of prep work, you know, putting together quizzes in Canvas and putting together everything. And then also busy work dealing with uh, student, you know, questions and issues and problems and whatever that, that always exist. But again, because of all the facets of online that are unique to online that we've been talking about, there tends to be more uh, student questions and issues and problems and whatever to, to respond to. And the fact that it's mostly written electronic and not just a student, you know, before class, after class, ask me a quick question. I tell them the answer and boom, you know, two seconds it's done versus, Oh, look, I've got to read this email. In some cases I have to try and figure out what it actually means. Mm-hmm. And I've got to respond to it. And then, Oh, look at that. There's another one from someone else asking a different question, you know? And so all of this has been, um, I, I did the, the math, at least on these early weeks, you know, trying to figure out, okay, I don't have to do the commute, which is an hour and a half every day. Am I actually coming out ahead in terms of time? And I can be a little bit lazier in the morning because I don't have to get dressed up as much. You know, I can, I can, I can be a little bit, you know, I mean, I generally I'm, I'm, I'm clad and whatever, but I'm not, you know, my hair is not brushed up as nice and I'm not quite as nicely dressed tonight. And I, and I do you know, teach over the Zoom barefoot. So that's kind of cool. I like that part. But, um, you know, I'm pretty sure my time savings is negative. I'm pretty sure um, it certainly feels that way. And as best I could figure it out, trying to do it objectively, I think that right now, uh, in terms of how much of my my time and certainly how much of my energy and sanity my my teaching day job is eating up, I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss. Now, if if next semester I do some of these same classes online again, then I might come out ahead because at least the, the, the tedious prep work 
of building everything online uh, for the class. That's all done. I would still have to do the live Zoom class meetings for the classes that do that. And I would still have to deal with all the student questions and, you know, issues and complaints and whatever. Um, but at least I wouldn't have to do most of the prep work because I'd have my quizzes and tests already done. I would have the models in Canvas already set up, et cetera. So, um, you know, we'll see. They might decide next, maybe next semester they'll decide that uh, everything's going to go back in the classroom. And then all the work I did building all these online things will be, you know, only for one one semester and I won't get any real you know, benefit from it. Right. But um, who knows? You know, we're already hearing kind of vague things about next semester that they actually want to do some classes on in campus. And they're actually like, now they're nudging everybody to like do at least one or two in-person classes. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure most people um, are dealing with some version of this with, with their job and their work and everything, as far as just everything being up in the air. And it's hard to, it's hard to plan ahead very long or know what to expect because the folks in charge keep changing their minds. Exactly. And, uh, you know, just based on how you're thinking and feeling about this right now, uh, last question I wanted to ask you on this topic. I don't know if you've been following Spearco's uh, Megatrends articles that he's been writing. No. You're familiar with his podcast. Though, yes. Right? Yes. I've, I've been on his podcast a couple of times and I'm actually part of the uh, the Unloose the Goose Avengers now. I don't know if you're if you're familiar with that. It's like a, a podcast. Uh, I don't know what you would call it. An ensemble podcast. A swap cast. This is the thing. Yeah, it's it's like a it's like a it's like a bunch of people though. It's um it's Spearco, it's uh, Pete Canones, it's um a, f- a few other people I'm I'm less familiar with. Sal the Agorist, um Xavier Hawk, uh, one guy I I don't know him as well, and Nicole Sauce, mm-hmm. uh, as she's known on the internet, she's uh, one of the kind of sort of organizers of it and whatever. But yeah, yep, yep. So anyway, long story short, yes, I know Spearco. All right, so. He's been doing this uh, series of articles on megatrends and how these different aspects of society will have major implications economically. So he did one on the lower levels of school and the higher levels. He's talking about, obviously, in the K through 12, a student exodus and uh, parents pulling their kids out of school. Uh, but I'm wondering in higher education, I guess, I, you know, you could probably speak for – well, I mean, you can't speak for teachers generally, but I'd be interested in your pos- um, position on this. Do you think they're – if these frustrations continue, you'll see an exodus from higher education where people just retire early or try to find something else to do. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely possible um, from from the faculty perspective for sure. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not at the point where I can walk away and like just do podcasting full time at this point. Um, I can tell you that if I was there uh i'd be out i'd be out the door you know if 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 my podcast was making joe rogan money or whatever i mean i would have walked i probably would have walked away a long time ago if that was the case but um sure you know i could see the appeal uh of of looking for other options and, and maybe uh you know putting one together for sure and definitely if i was you know like already nearing retirement age or in the drop program or whatever, I'd, I'd be looking to bail out as soon as was financially feasible. So I see that happening. Um, but then again, you know, because of academia being so overcrowded uh, with, you know, so many people walking around with MAs and PhDs and whatever, I don't think there's going to be a shortage of people desperate to take those jobs anytime soon. I mean, there's, there's always, even, even for, you know, a humble job at a community college, there'll be dozens of applicants for a full-time job 
full-time teaching job, uh, most of whom have PhDs these days. Right. And, and this was true 10 years ago, you know, long before COVID and whatever. So I don't think there'll, there'll be like a faculty shortage. I think that it might speed up. The boomers have in academia, as in so many other places, been kind of dragging their feet on exiting. Um, yeah. And so it might speed up the generational turnover, maybe. Um, and, you know, given what some of the millennials are like, uh, maybe that's, that's not an improvement. Um, from the student's perspective, I can see if this COVID madness continues for a long time with higher education, I can see students turning increasingly from fancy universities and, and all that to places like where I work in community colleges and more kind of humble places because you know, if you're going to be doing a Zoom class, there's no experience to pay for. Yeah, you, you really, it's, it's, it's even more hard to justify the expense of a university if you're not getting any of the, any of the other stuff. You know, you're not getting the student center and the football games and the, you know, dorm life and all that other wonderful stuff. Um, like, why not get a community right. college education if it's the same, essentially? Um, yeah, I talked to, uh, Corey, you know, Corey DeAngelis from the Reason Foundation, follow his work at all. Uh, the name sounds familiar, but, but, uh, not someone I follow or know very well. He's, he's, um, he's come to prominence in the last like year or so, and he's a real school choice and educational freedom warrior. He does some work with Cato. Uh, he's been on my show a couple of times. So we were talking, uh, the other day we did a podcast and we were, we were talking more about the lower levels of school, but there was some uh, just, uh, you know, curiosity about like, what is it going to take for these institutions to actually start, acknowledging market signals because right now schools are doing ridiculous things like there, there's public schools that are trying to double dip while they're still you know collecting property taxes um while the teachers don't want to go back to work they're also charging parents for daycare if they want to or, or need to send their kids to the school right so there are parents who are now paying for this system twice but obviously this isn't sustainable now higher education gets a ton of um government money, taxpayer money. So they're not super receptive to these kinds of signals either. But I, I think that's one of the interesting opportunities of this time. Do things reach a state where public school and higher ed, uh, especially like state schools, are forced to uh, participate in some kind of feedback loop finally? Yeah, it's possible, especially when you add in the overall effects of uh, the economic effects of COVID. Mm -hmm. yep. That you know, I mean, it was already a, a, a really, you know, iffy economic equation of is it worth it to, to go to college or whatever like that. And I guess it's a question of the, the hard-nosed, practical dollars and cents, nuts and bolts stuff versus the continuing propaganda and mythology that everyone should go to college and college is the answer for everybody. And if you just get any college degree in anything, you'll automatically get a good middle-class job for the rest of your life. And, you know, all these things that like stopped being good advice 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. And it seems like that has to be evaporating now for the average person. You would think so, but I swear oh. I, I keep seeing, I keep seeing evidence that it's, it's, it's like a religion uh, among some people. And, and, and sometimes it's among the people who, who, um, you know, potentially are, are most likely to be harmed. You know, I mean, if you're a, if you're the child of one of those wealthy celebrities who's bribing Princeton to let you into the, to the school or whatever, 
It's like if it, your parents can probably pay for tuition or at least handle the, the debt if you run up debt. But it's like, it seems like it's particularly strong amongst, you know, young people from lower economic backgrounds who, you know, there's that mindset of like, oh, I want to be the first in my family to go to college and uh, it's going to be my ticket to the middle class. And like that, that seems to be in, in at least, you know, my own personal observation, still a pretty widespread idea amongst kind of like, you know, blue collar type people and, and even poor people um, that a lot of them still have it in their head that like college is the answer. And for some of them, it is right. For some of them, they, sure. they get degrees yeah. in particular things that do help them to get decent jobs and whatever. But, but of course it's not the answer for everybody. And who's going to be harmed the most by potentially running up a bunch of debt and either not successfully graduating or graduating with a degree that doesn't really help you get any kind of a good job. Right. It's going to be the person who's from a poorer background, um, who's more likely to put more of their education on, on the credit card, so to speak, and to have, more trouble um, handling those those student loan payments and whatever than the person who comes from an affluent background, um, and so you know I I, I think there's still and, and part of it may be a generational thing too that like if you look at um, things like like school guidance counselors and people like that that often have a disproportionate influence on uh, on you know like kids in high school deciding if they want to go to college it's like a lot of them are still kind of baby boom generation people who grew up and lived the idea that you could go to college inexpensively. And there was a like good likelihood because there wasn't as much degree inflation yet that it could help yeah. you get a good job. And so they're giving, they're giving advice that, you know, was good advice up until maybe four years ago and they're just still doing it. And so I don't know. It's sort of a race. It's a race between like the, the hard nosed economic realities that it's an economic loser for a lot of people, not for everybody, but for a lot of people versus the propaganda. And then also, you know, how much can the institutions be backstopped um, financially by state and federal government? Right. Um, and, and, and if, and when does that ability run out? And then also, I mean, there's the possibility of the student, student loan bubble bursting in some way and, and maybe making it, taking that whole system down in some fashion. And then there's uh, there's the issue of accreditation, right? And I know, I know Thaddeus Russell yeah. has, has talked about this a lot, you know, when he was like looking to make Renegade University like a, an actual university in the legal sense, um, not just metaphorically that, you know, that accreditation is a, a real big part of the power of the yes, higher yeah. education system that they have this like, you know, cartel sort of system um, that limits competition and, and limits like newer, smaller colleges being able to be started more often. And, and, you know, without kind of ridiculous hurdles um, at entry and, you know, it also, it prevents like just radically different colleges from, being attempted. You know, you don't have that wide open entrepreneurial sort of blank slate the way you do in some other uh, fields and industries where people can try radically new ideas and see if they work. Um, yeah. So, you know, you, you've got this, this race between the more kind of small C conservative forces trying to keep the status quo as best they can versus the, the harsh economic realities, uh, the, the technological changes, and then of course the fallout from COVID and all that. I don't have a, a magic bullet easy answer um, to all that. I wish there was some way of developing 
some sort of free market accreditation that could still somehow operate in a voluntary, more self-directed type of paradigm. Mm. Um, I think that online teaching and learning, obviously I don't have a problem with online teaching and learning in and of itself because that's essentially what my podcast is. You know, it's more than anything else. It's a, it's an educational type podcast. Um, yep. but it's a completely different ball game because that's just totally voluntary. It's like, Hey, someone wants to listen to me and hear what I have to say, maybe learn something. That's great. And if you don't want to have a nice life, uh, there's, there's not that adversarial relationship of, I'm going to grade you and that may prevent your life plans from coming to fruition if you don't get the right grade. And so, you know, someone listening to my podcast, they're not trying to game the system to get a decent grade at the easiest, uh, at, at, the, at the least cost and effort. They're, they're intrinsically motivated right, yeah. by interest or curiosity in what I'm talking about. And so they get more out of it. I get a better feedback, you know, loop, because even though that's kind of speaking into the void or whatever, but then, then through, you know, my Facebook group and other online social media and email, and whatever, I hear from people all the time about, you know, how much they enjoyed my podcast or, or how much they learned something from me or whatever. Um, and I, I get, I get positive feedback way more often from there than from regular teaching, even though my, my evaluations at, uh, at teaching are almost always, you know, mostly very good, but still in terms of like that, that's because they're forced, students are forced to fill out that evaluation form though, at the end of the semester. Um, right. and, and they mostly are positive to me usually most of the time, but the students who have their own initiative, like email me or come up to me at the end of the semester and I'm like, Hey, I really enjoyed it. It happens, but it's, you know, it's an every now and then thing. And I, and I really appreciate it. And it makes my day when, when a student does something like that. But, um, with the podcast, it's way more frequent that I hear from people literally all over the world saying how much they appreciated, you know, some, some podcast I did or some series I did. Yeah. I share that experience for sure. Can I keep you for 45 minutes to talk about something entirely different? Absolutely. Everybody's everybody we're gonna hang it there for today like i said check back for midweek for what i think is one of the most important conversations you're gonna hear in this podcast feed this year thanks again everyone we'll reconvene soon I see you posting, you know, the fitness updates. So how have you modified your routine um, with everything that's been going on over the last, I guess, six months now? Yeah, well, um, the the running and outdoor cardio and stuff, I've just been continuing to do, you know, hiking with, hiking with weights on a pack, um, running, riding bike, all that stuff. I mean, you know, it's 
been a lot more miserable uh, doing that stuff here in Florida since I spoke to you last. The weather was still kind of decent, especially in the mornings back in the spring. Uh, these days, it's you know insanely hot and humid all the time, except for it's a little less hot when it's thunderstorming. But right, yeah. you know, but as long as I get out there before you know seven thirty or so, uh, the heat index is still below ninety. So there's that. Um, so that stuff has has been continuing along pretty much the same. Uh, the weightlifting, strength training stuff I've amped up, you know, continue to to progress and and um, off from you know, home. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I managed to. It took me several months, but I managed to slowly accumulate a decent horde of home fitness stuff. Now I've got I've got multiple sets now of adjustable dumbbells and a pretty good collection of weight plates and all that kind of stuff. I've got a few more kettlebells than I used to have. So I can, you know, different weights for different exercises. Um, I, I still, still have the dip bars and, and uh, chin up bar that I got at the beginning of all this. I'm probably forgetting a few things, but I've got a pretty good home gym at this point. So much so that even when a few months ago, the gyms here in Florida reopened, um, I just went ahead and terminated my gym membership because I said, I've got everything I need here and I don't have to, you know, drive halfway across town and deal with people and deal with, you know, aside from the, the COVID stuff, which I'm a little, I've been a little bit careful um, because of some family members that are more vulnerable to it than I am. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even just aside from the COVID stuff at the gym, the, just the hassles of like, sometimes if it's crowded, you got to wait to use a particular piece of equipment and all that kind of crap. Um, now I can just, I get more of a workout because I'm spending the whole time. I'm just walking out into my living room and going at it yeah. and not waiting for anything. And I'm able to, you know, in two hours, it's two hours of working out instead of 20 minutes driving to the gym, 15 minutes worth of waiting for, for equipment and all that stuff. So yeah, um, I've done well there. Haven't, haven't been doing uh, martial arts um, since that, that closed down also in March when the gyms did. They reopened again a few months ago, but um, again, for, for some family members' sake, I've been staying away. Although even that, I'm probably going to go either in the next month or two, go back to martial arts. Nice. So I've, I've gained weight, but, but it actually is mostly muscle, and I'm cool with that. Yeah, I've been dying to talk to somebody about this because I think that it's been like a really exciting new adventure. I've got the rubber bands. Do you know about the rubber bands? Uh, they're called resistance bands. Yes. Okay. So uh, this has been great. I'm currently shopping for a heavier one. And they usually come in sets of four, like light, medium, heavy, extra heavy. And then you can get like extra, extra heavy. And you can pretty much replicate any movement that you can do in a gym with these things. I also have a set of uh, the ones with the little hooks. They have the little carabiners at the end and you can attach handles to them. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a pull-up bar. Uh, I've got an ab roller. I've got two 35-pound kettlebells. And, uh, you know, I'm currently like looking for expansion, right? I mm -hmm. want more kettlebells. I kind of want like a 70 pound kettlebell. That's really exciting to me. Um, or, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking to get maybe a 60 or something like that right now. My heaviest one is a 45. Yeah. Um, which I is saw pretty, that it was beautiful. Yeah. 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 That, that was one of those things. I, I ordered that thing on Amazon in, in March and probably got it in May or something like that. Um, and 45 is good for, for swings and things like that, but it's a little bit light, at least for me, if it's pretty good for swings, but for like deadlift type moves and stuff like that, it's a little bit on the light side. 
Yeah, well, if you're looking to 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 grow the home gym, I do recommend these resistance bands. And hmm. uh, I also found a bar it was like fifty bucks. It's it's like it's part of some other thing called a Zeno gym. And you know you can attach the bands to the bar and then pull the bar just to have like a different you know grip. Sometimes changing up the grip is cool. Um, but yeah, uh, really really exciting uh, <laughs> like revolution in uh, the whole fitness thing, which I was already yeah. pretty obsessed about. And um, this has just been you know so many new challenges, so many new adventures. And I've been doing like six days a week, usually like forty five to fifty minutes uh, each day. That seems pretty manageable if you split things the right way. And I also saw, I think this is what uh, inspired me to ask you about this. You had some kind of thing that looks like, like a vest that you mount, uh, plates to, like, oh, it, it, yeah. It's, yeah, that's actually, it's a backpack, uh, frame. Yeah. So, so it's a, it's a heavy duty backpack frame. It's made by a company called Outdoorsman, Outdoorsmen's, something yeah. like that. Um, and it's a pack frame that has this post on it so that you can clamp on Olympic weight plates and you can, I think it, it's rated for up to 90 pounds of weight and it's a pack that you can also buy a backpack for as well. If you go hunting, camping, hiking, anything like that, you can take the, the weight post thingy off and then put an actual backpack on and use it for real, you know, uh, long distance hiking and backcountry hunting and all this sort of thing. And yeah, this was something I heard about Joe Rogan has mentioned it a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And I always, when I heard him say it, I was like, man, that's kind of cool. That sounds neat. I, I want to get that. I, I, I hunted a little bit when I was growing up. I haven't in years, but it's one of those things I'm always like, ah, I'd like to get back into that and whatever. Um, but I've, I've always been into hiking and the idea, and I've done makeshift things where like, you know, take an old military surplus backpack and like stick sandbags in it or whatever. Mm -hmm. But this sounded way better to be able to just like clamp weight plates onto a serious backpack frame with, you know, good shoulder straps and uh, waist belt and all this sort of thing. So I, that was another thing I ordered pretty early on when the gyms closed because I wanted to have more, you know, options for cardio besides what I was already doing. And um yeah, so got that. And then, of course, you know, it's hard to find weight plates these days. So it took me a little while to get a few a few big weight plates for that. But yeah, that's another thing I've been doing. It's it's a pretty pricey uh, thing. The, the, the version I have with the, I think it's called the Atlas Trainer or something like that. This this device that holds the, the weight plates. But um, it's like 300 bucks, very high quality, super rugged, American-made uh, stuff. But for, for 300 bucks, you get the pack frame. And then the whole straps, you know, shoulder straps, waist straps, and all that. Um, and so, yeah, that's another thing I've been doing. Is uh, there, there's a pretty, pretty awesome nature preserve, fifteen twenty minutes from my house, with a lot of trails. Yeah. And um, some decent hills by Florida standards. So you know, most most places would consider it, you know, hardly anything. But um, it's the best you can get around here for hills. And it's a pretty cool place. I see all kinds of neat wildlife all the time. You know, just tons and tons of deer and wild hogs and turkeys and hawks and there's actually a few bald eagles in there and um i even saw a bunch of months ago now i even saw lived in florida my my whole life saved two years spent mm -hmm. tons of time in the outdoors in florida my whole life and the first time in my life something i never thought i would actually do i saw a florida panther in the wild man everything there is just uh trying to kill you huh pretty much yeah okay pretty much I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, 
there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.